So, I'd like to invite you to go ahead and turn up in your copy of God's Word. We now approach the, approach the preaching of the Word. That's a tongue twister. <laughs> approach the preaching of the Word. I never thought about that. It is kind of a tongue twister. <laughs> but yeah, so, uh, please turn to John chapter 3. We'll be in um, verses 17 through 21 tonight. Uh, last week, of course, I was preaching on verse 16. Uh, I say, of course, uh, Esther and I were both there, but the others who were there weren't here tonight in many ways. So, no, all of you guys would have known that. But um, tonight, though, we'll be looking at verse 17 through 21 specifically. And so as we begin, I have a simple question for you. Who here, by show of hands, ever used what they call a prism back in grade school? Or when you were a child, a little yeah. prism, right? My mother had a lamp yeah. that had prisms hanging all of us. There you go. the shade. Yeah, yeah, Pink Floyd. Pink. <laughs> Dude, you stole my lunch. Exactly, Pink Floyd. Yeah, Dark Side of the Moon. The dark Side of the Moon. Yes, yes, yes. That's, That's exactly it. <laughs> ultimate, you were in my mind. Ultimate prism. <laughs> that was the way to be the illustration. Yeah. <laughs> you called it, man. <laughs> Pink Floyd. <laughs> yeah, I, I was literally thinking, because, yeah, if you have seen at least the artwork for Pink Floyd, you know what I'm talking about, right? But, you know, the light goes in, goes to the prism, and then the separates out into the brilliant array of like rainbowed colors, right? So you see the whole like, refracted light coming out of this white light going through this little tiny object and therefore bursting forth and separating out all the various colors that compose that white light, yeah. right? Now, I know we talked about that last week briefly uh, during John 3.16, that sermon, but I want to bring it up again because really what we see in verse 16 is basically the white light, so to speak, of the gospel. We see the gospel message very, you know, clean, pristine, just going in. And here in verses 17 through 21, we kind of see, if you will, the refracted light coming out. We see all the different implications of the gospel, right? So we see themes, like we talked about last week, themes like darkness versus light. And we see themes like opposition to the gospel versus reception of the gospel. And so we see these kinds of things all throughout verses 17 through 21, Again, much like that light coming into a prism and then being refracted out. And it's full of various gospel implications. And so this morning, I went to... This morning, wow. Evening. This evening. It's been a long day. I was preaching this morning as well. You were saying, uh, where are you? Yeah, I was actually preaching on John 3.16 at a different church a couple hours away. So yeah, I'm like, okay. There? Yeah. That was in Covington, Virginia. So uh, anyways, right. this evening though, it is evening now, believe it or not. Uh, I want us to focus upon the implications of the gospel, you know, that we see in John 3.16. You know, God's sending his son into the world and so then shining forth the light of Christ into our sinful world of darkness. Now, as a brief little precursor, as those on whom the light of Christ has shone, we ourselves are very much like a prism as well. We're made to actually send, that forth, uh, send forth that light continuously out into this world. In many ways, we are called to be messengers of the gospel, we're called to basically continue that light out, so to speak, into our various spheres of influence, wherever they might lead us. Now, some, of course, will receive this gospel. They'll see the light. They'll be like, wow, that's so amazing. God is so good. Many others will not. They will actually just simply despise the gospel or jeer at the gospel even. And so our main idea for us tonight is this. As we engage with our neighbors, because we are, and we have been doing it the last three months that we've been meeting, but as we continue to engage with our neighbors, we will see all the more 
firsthand exactly where the light pierces the darkness. That's a very bold statement. So again, as we engage with our neighbors, we will see firsthand where the light pierces into the darkness. I'll unpack that in a moment, but for right now, let's go ahead and pray as we ask for God's blessing on this time, the preaching of God's holy word. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that truly all things belong to you. We thank you, O Lord, that even as you taught us to pray, that yours truly is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. So, Lord, as we approach your word, we thank you that it is truly good and so just faithful and just filled with pronunciations of this gospel over us. And so we pray that as we come now to the reading of your word and the preaching of the same, that we would be filled with joy inexplicable, that we would see the gospel in its sublime glory, and that we would revel in Christ our Savior. And so, Lord, would you bless this time of the gospel being pronounced over each one of us. Use me as your messenger and fill our hearts with a greater sense of awe and wonder over you. We pray all this in Christ's holy name. Amen. Well, friends, John 3, <clears throat> I'll actually start in verse 16 for us, just to give us some of the context. Verse 16, though, begins with the following. This is the very word of God. John 3, 16 and following. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed." But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Well, friends, as those who have been loved by God and brought into a covenantal relationship with him, we are those whom I'm convinced God is sending out in our neighborhood even to engage with men and women of various walks of life. We know people have moved here from all over, literally the world even, like you, right? From Germany. <laughs> you must have heard that Lynchburg was this great place, right? I'm just kidding. But, uh, you know, the draw was there. I'm just teasing. <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, and I, I moved away as well before to Charlottesville and Culpeper, and some reason, for some reason Lynchburg always seems to draw me back, right? But this is home. This is home for all of us in many ways. And I know you're only here for a season two as well, here for Liberty. But in many ways... Just Lynchburg has drawn a lot of people from around the world and even around the country to this. Yeah. And we love this city, of course. And I believe, though, that God is truly equipping each one of us here as those who believe in Christ to be, in effect, missionaries. And he's told us as much in his word elsewhere, like the Great Commission of all places, right? 
And so we are purpose in many ways, especially as a church plan, as downtown Presbyterian, a group of believers even, to shine forth the light of Christ in both word and deed. But in order to do this effectively and with fuller knowledge, we must do two distinct things. First, these will be our points for tonight, we must recognize humanity's critical condition. Things aren't so grand, right? We must recognize humanity's critical condition. And two, in the positive, we must dwell upon Christ's critical mission. So humanity's critical condition and Christ's critical mission. I'll come back around to why I'm using that word critical a little later. It all makes sense here in a moment. But for the meantime, though, elsewhere in Scripture, 1 Peter 2, verse 9 tells us this. It tells us that we, indeed, again, all of us who believe, are a chosen race. We're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? So that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. See, whereas the world lies in the darkness of sin, we have been brought into the light. And while sin's end, destruction itself, like we talked about last week in John 3, 16, yet awaits those who walk in darkness day in and day out. We are children of light who are purposed for restoration and destined for life eternal in Christ. For there is salvation in no other name but Jesus Christ. See, this restoration, though, as children of light, is written into our very spiritual DNA, so to speak. That we are to be declares or proclaimers of God's glorious salvation. Now, like Jonah, <laughs> long before us, who preached repentance to the people of Nineveh, or like Noah, who preached to the world of God's coming wrath against sin and warned them of the flood, or like a certain dog of mine, who will remain nameless for right now, who barks at the wind, he was just doing this yesterday, by the way, in order to warn his owner of perceived danger, we must be those same people like Noah and else uh, otherwise, who warn others out of love of the just condemnation that sin has earned. And that condemnation is eternal destruction, as verse 16 talks about. Those who perish implicitly. See, this is what sin deserves. It deserves to be destroyed because no unholy thing can stand before a holy God at the last. And that's good news for us. At the last, sin will be dealt with. There will be no more evil or suffering or pain or guilt or shame or anything of that sort. It will be dealt with. It will be thrown away. It will be done. It will be so far from you, you'll forget all about it one day in glory. But for right now, we live still in the presence of sin. See, we know and we must know indeed that the nature of sin is that it blinds men to the truth. It covers their eyes. It makes them not even able to see the goodness of God, as Romans 1 tells us. And unless the Holy Spirit himself calls men to repentance, our evangelism, the best sharing of the gospel you can imagine, the best call to come to Christ, will only prove to be their demise. 
if they do not turn and repent of their sin. This is why then that John 3, 17 tells us the following, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. But it doesn't stop there. It goes on. The one who believes in him is not condemned. This is the word of warning. The one who does not believe is condemned already. Now, that's a very powerful statement in the Greek. I won't get into all the Greek tonight for us like I did last week. There was a lot of Greek last week. I won't Greek out on you guys again. Not tonight at least. Oh, man. I know. Next time. Geek. Next time. Oh, yeah. But that word for already is basically in the Greek implying and really actually just stating straight up that, look, they're condemned already because they are in Adam. They've already fallen. They are already in a state of sin. That's why they're condemned. And they go on to continue living, just as their father Adam did, in sin. There is no rescue or salvation within Adam. There's no salvation in the, just the way it was. In other words, to paraphrase John 3, 17, God's purpose in sending his son into the world was not to, at that time, 2,000 years ago, to cast the final pronouncement of condemnation for sin, but rather upon the cross 2,000 years ago to secure salvation once for all time for every single one of his people from among the world. And so therefore, those who believe, like you and me, are no longer condemned. For our faith is not in Adam or the works of humanity or anything of the sort. Rather, it's in Christ, the one who came as the second, the true, the better Adam. And so we do, we do not stand condemned but again, a word of warning, those who do not believe prove, in essence, their condemnation before a holy God. That's a very loaded statement, and I'd love to unpack that with you later after the service even. But it's very, very sobering. So we have to ask ourselves the question then, what is the condemnation? You know, what does the condemnation mean? What is it for? Why would God condemn us, Right? Or rather, why would we be condemned, quite literally, if the text is telling us? Well, the condemnation or judgment, that's another word for it, as verse 19 puts it, is this. That the light has come into the world. That's good news, right? That's not condemnation, that's good news. The light has come into the world, but here it is. Here's the condemnation. People loved the darkness rather than the light, meaning Jesus, because their works were evil. They stood condemned because they hate Jesus. They stood condemned because they rejected him. In other words, the condemnation of man is really self-inflicted. It's because of our sin. See, in Christ coming to earth, our true loves are revealed before the light of life, Jesus himself. And the only two responses to Christ, the light of the world, or to either believe in him or to disbelieve. In other words, there is no via media. Are you okay? Yeah, I'm, sure. I'm sorry. Okay. Okay. Do you need some painkiller? I'm okay. Do I need some painkillers? Yeah. Like like ibuprofen or something? No, I I I meant to take a little half a pill before I came down. Okay. Forgot. Okay. 
I'll get you some. I'll be okay. I took some aspirin. Okay. Okay. That's all I sure. take is aspirin. Okay. Okay. Let me know if you can. If we can yeah, just sit in it. It's just. Yeah. Okay. Hard on me. I'm sorry. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Oh. Okay. I'm all right. I just have to. Okay. Just making sure. Shift around a bit. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for letting us know. I really I'm shifting. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for sharing. Um, friends, again, like, our only two responses to the very light of Christ himself are to either believe him or to disbelieve. There's no in-between. You either love Jesus or you hate Jesus. There's no via media. There's no middle way when it comes to salvation by faith. There's no third option or another way around it. One either trusts in the very finished work of God and Christ Jesus upon the cross, Christ who fulfilled all righteousness and who freely gives that righteousness to everyone who trusts in him, or one trusts in the fallen work of mankind and our father Adam, who collectively as mankind have failed at maintaining righteousness before a holy God. We either trust in Jesus or we trust in ourselves, in other words. See, one is a new birth afforded by the Holy Spirit, but the other is a dying effort to strive after the wind. Our fallen human condition, then, our condemnation even is this, that men loved the darkness rather than the light. And the word for love here in verse 19 in the Greek, there you go, there's your Greek noun, Esther. <laughs> in the Greek, though, is the same word that has been used of God's love already in the same passage, like even in John 3, 16. It's that same word, agape, love, covenantal, intimate, relational love. It's the same kind of love that God has toward us as his people. That's the same kind of love, sadly, that the world has for their sin. Men loved the darkness they loved the just promiscuity, if you will, of the soul. Now, though each one of us are made in the image and likeness of God, and his purpose in creating us was to take delight in us as his children, our sin as a result of the fall is now integral. It's worked into who we are as people. It is why we experience brokenness in this life. It's why we experience the, the thieving of joy or the harm experienced in damaged relationships or the lusting after what does not belong to us or the fornication of loving intimacy. All of these things and more are wicked and reprehensible before the eyes of a holy God. But here comes the good news. See, the Lord knows our wickedness. He knows our sin. And he is so loving and merciful toward us, even us sinners, that he sent his son to take upon himself the sins of everyone who believes upon him for salvation. Salvation from what? Salvation from such hostility and rebellion against himself. Salvation from our sin, our condemnation even, all of the things that we deserve. See, whereas the statement, people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil, whereas that is the condemnation that stands against those who do not believe, the gospel proclaims to us that 
the light has come into the world. Now that expression of the light has come into the world for us who believe is not then our condemnation. Rather, it is our hope of salvation. It is the single greatest act of love and mercy in the history of the world, of all existence, really. And it was accomplished by the very one who made you and me, who knows our frame, who knows us, and who loves us. This brings us to our second point, that we must dwell then upon Christ's critical mission. See, it is only when we recognize humanity's critical condition that we can begin to now dwell upon the good news all the more, not just the bad news, but upon the beauty and the majesty of Christ's critical mission on our behalf, his desire and his accomplished work of actually saving sinners such as you and me. Now, I use the word critical, as I mentioned, I was going to answer that for you all later, but I use the word critical because it is, as Christ came into the world, it was marked by real crisis and decisiveness. That's what the word crisis means, is decision. If something is critical, you have to make a decision, left or right, which way will you go, hot or cold, you can't choose everything, you must choose now. That was what Christ did for us. He came on a critical mission to seek and to save the lost. Now, last week we explored the treasure house that is John 3.16, just that one verse and we unpacked it. And we saw just how sheer and mighty God's love is toward his own. Those chosen in Christ before the world's foundation. Those who believe, who are not purposed for condemnation or destruction, but rather for life eternal, as John 3.16 tells us. But implicit in all this talk about God's mercy is that it is not a kind of forced mercy, as if he had to show mercy to us, or he had to love us. See, God did not have to love us, or he didn't have to send his only son on a rescue mission for us. He could have, out of justice, just said, hey, they have so botched everything up, they deserve hell. Okay, away they go. And he could have been justified in doing that. But out of his love, he said, no, I want them. I'm going to go after them. I'm actually going to give my only son to go after them and rescue them myself so they can enjoy me and know me and they can know my love the love that they will never find anywhere else and so from eternity past Christ willingly vowed himself to come down to earth for our sake to gather together into one the lost sheep of Israel to create for himself the very bride of his choosing and to delight and so offer her life on the basis of his goodness and his righteousness and not her own. Like a loyal friend who offers up his own livelihood for your sake or like a parent who sacrifices his or her own welfare just so that you can live in peace and vitality, God has an infinitely greater degree of love and tenderness as we sang earlier toward each one of us who fall upon the very mercies of Christ and the gospel. Now, though in his holiness, again, God is perfectly just and indeed must remove all sin and wickedness away from his presence, and he will indeed at the last. The Son has taken upon his own shoulders, quite literally, 
the condemnation of us, his people. He has borne the weight of our sin in full. We need only confess our sins and call upon his name for such forgiveness and salvation and real eternal healing. It leads us to the question, what then about those who do not confess Christ as Lord? Well, the Bible teaches us that those who stumble over Christ the rock do so, as 1 Peter tells us, because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. It's a sobering reality. But we shouldn't be surprised then at the hatred of Christ and for Christ that is so evident in this world. Of course, we know it and we see it day by day. If you ever turn on the news, you see this hatred toward all that is good and holy and of God. And then mock and ridicule Jesus left and right even. They still hate the Savior. Now this hatred for Christ then is evident, is evidence rather, that men are in a love affair with their sin rather than knowing and walking in the holy love of their maker and the only redeemer of sin. After all, as Christ himself said in Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. And so this then is the line that Christ himself drew in the sand for all of us. As we see Christ, and we must respond to him with either belief or disbelief. Either we can go on, continue loving the darkness of our sins and hate the light, we can love the Lord and hate our sin. Again, there is no middle ground. You either love Jesus or you don't. Now, I know that you understand this call of Jesus to come to himself and so have eternal life. I know we've talked about this before, even in just different conversations and in previous weeks of meeting for worship, of course. We know this gospel. But as the light of Christ has shone on us who already believe, this passage of John 3 has reminded us now, I believe, this evening, that we do not then belong anymore to the patterns of this world and its foreign loves. Rather, we belong to the one who loved us and gave himself for us. We too were once those who hated the light and we did not want our works to be exposed. But now that the light of Christ has shone upon us, revealing our need for a Savior, and by receiving this gift of love, we have now been made to walk in the light and even willfully learn to love the light. So that, as John 3.21 puts it, our final verse, that it may be clearly seen that our works have been carried out in ourselves? No, in God. He is the one who finished the work for us. He is the one who earned salvation for us. And this is good news. It ought to properly make each one of us desire for our friends and our neighbors, our loved ones, our family, to know the same liberating gospel. But we need to be honest with ourselves as a church. Many false gospels abound even here in downtown Lynchburg, don't they? We have all kinds of false gospels that seek to distort what is good and beautiful and true. And that is the nature of sin's darkness, in fact. And the greatest distortion of 
The truth in our day and age, I'm convinced, and even in our own town of Lynchburg, especially downtown, is that the word of God is not seen as being sufficient for our culture, let alone for our own lives as individuals. In other words, we basically give God the finger. We say, I don't need this. I, sure, it's okay. You, know, you can believe that if you want, but it doesn't speak into my life in any way. God can't tell me what to do. That's how a lot of people behave and act and what they really believe here in our midst. And I love our neighbors, but I've seen it myself firsthand. And if we're being honest with ourselves, again, if we were not in Christ, we too would have the same kind of mindset. God can't tell me what to do. I can live my own life. I can make up my own rules. See, many here in Lynchburg are content in saying that they simply know God, or maybe even they say that they love Jesus, the idea of Jesus that they have in their own minds. But is the Christ that people think they know the true Son of God that we see revealed in the Word of God. See, many in our town have honestly been so hurt by different churches here, and not rightfully so by any means, but they've been so hurt that the image of Christ that they have in their minds has been tainted and distorted to the point where they no longer really love Jesus or know him personally as the pursuer of their own souls. Having lived here the last 21 years now, and having ministered in Central Virginia, Charlottesville, Culpeper, Lynchburg alike, ever since 2010, I've seen a growing undercurrent swelling up, an undercurrent of jadedness toward the church and toward God himself. And so my encouragement for each one of us tonight is that we would become more and more a people who would pay very careful attention to not just the message of the gospel that we proclaim, you know, getting our doctrine right, in other words, but also the manner, the how, the manner in which we live our lives as Christians before others here in downtown Lynchburg. For oftentimes, how they see us acting says to them a whole lot more about Christ than they might ever read from in the scriptures. Now, I'm not saying that's proper or that's good, but that often is what they see and what they know. And so the most straightforward way to do this then, you know, how do we do this, right? But the most straightforward way of doing this is to continually point our own souls and the souls of others, even here in our midst, not to any good in and of ourselves. Basically, don't look at me. It's not me. If you see any good in me, it's not me. It's, it's all Christ. We need to point others to Christ's righteousness, to his what theologians call active obedience in our place. See, the gospel message of John 3.21 is this. It tells us this, that our works or our righteousness have been carried out in God. Again, we know that God accomplished salvation for us, but even the good things that we do are really things that God himself is doing and working through us as he pleases. And so this condemnation that was once ours has been born by Christ in our place, and he has carried it away as far as the east is from the west. Friends, upon the cross, our Savior drank down to the dregs the full cup of God's wrath for you. Do you believe this? If so, then there is no more condemnation left for you to atone for, 
or to try to pay off as if God still expected you to meet him halfway, you know, get your act together, then we'll be fine. Or as if he is expecting you to drink any ounce of wrath to atone for your own sins at this point. Christ says, drink it all in full. He's paid it all in full. And this is love, as First John tells us. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And so in closing, the fact that God would even spare us, let alone save us, is inconceivable. But for his love, but for his grace, and but for the work that he accomplished in our place. As the hymn writer once put it in closing, no condemnation now I tread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him my living head and clothed in righteousness divine. So bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. 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 Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, whose king, whose righteous one, the Prince of Peace himself, is none other than Jesus. And so we declare this this evening, that we belong to you, and that we are yours, and that you have saved us. What joy, what gladness, what peace.